Chapter 1 of Memories and Adventures by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by A Fine Voice Chapter 1 Early Recollections Extraction H.B. Four Remarkable Brothers my mother's family tree, an unrecognised genius, my first knockout, Thackeray, the Fenians, early reading, my first story. I was born on May the 22nd, 1859, at Picardy Place, Edinburgh, so named because in old days a colony of French Huguenots had settled there. At the time of their coming, it was a village outside the city walls, but now it is at the end of Queen Street, abutting upon Leith Walk. When last I visited it, it seemed to have degenerated, but at that time the flats were of good repute. My father was the youngest son of John Doyle, who under the nom de crayon of H.B. made a great reputation in London from about 1825 to 1850. He came from Dublin about the year 1815, and may be said to be the father of polite caricature, for in the old days satire took the brutal shape of making the object grotesque in features and figure. Gilray and Rowlandson had no other idea. My grandfather was a gentleman, drawing gentleman for gentleman, and the satire lay in the wit of the picture, and not in the misdrawing of faces. This was a new idea but it has been followed by most caricaturists since, and so has become familiar. There were no comic papers in those days, and the weekly cartoon of H.B. was lithographed and distributed. He exerted, I am told, quite an influence upon politics, and was on terms of intimacy with many of the leading men of the day. I can remember him in his old age, a very handsome and dignified man, with features of the strong Anglo-Irish, Duke of Wellington stamp. He died in 1868. My grandfather was left a widower with a numerous family of which four boys and one girl survived. Each of the boys made a name for himself for all inherited the artistic powers of their father. The elder, James Doyle, wrote the Chronicles of England, illustrated with coloured pictures by himself examples of colour printing which beat any subsequent work that I have ever seen. He also spent thirteen years in doing the official baronage of England, a wonderful monument of industry and learning. Another brother was Henry Doyle, a great judge of old paintings, and in later years the manager of the National Gallery in Dublin, where he earned his CB. The third son was Richard Doyle, whose whimsical humour made him famous in Punch the cover of which, with its dancing elves, is still so familiar an object. Finally came Charles Doyle, my father. The Doyle family seemed to have been fairly well-to-do, thanks to my grandfather's talents. They lived in London in Cambridge Terrace. A sketch of their family life is given in Dickie Doyle's diary. They lived up to their income, however, and it became necessary to find places for the boys. When my father was only nineteen, a seat was offered him in the Government Office of Works in Edinburgh, whither he went. There he spent his working life, and thus it came about that I, an Irishman by extraction, was born in the Scottish capital, 
The Doyles, Anglo-Norman in origin, were strong Roman Catholics. The original Doyle, or Doyle, was a cadet branch of the Staffordshire Doyles, which has produced Sir Francis Hastings Doyle and many other distinguished men. This cadet shared in the invasion of Ireland and was granted estates in County Wexford, where a great clan rose of dependents, illegitimate children and others, all taking the feudal lord's name, just as the de Burgs founded the clan of Burke. We can only claim to be the main stem by virtue of community of character and appearance with the English Doyles, and the unbroken use of the same crest and coat of arms. My forebears, like most old Irish families in the South, kept to the old faith at the Reformation and fell victims to the penal laws in consequence. These became so crushing upon landed gentry that my great-grandfather was driven from his estate and became a silk mercer in Dublin, where H.B. was born. This family record was curiously confirmed by Monsignor Barry Doyle, destined, I think, for the highest honours of the Roman Church, who traces back to the younger brother of my great-grandfather. I trust the reader will indulge me in my excursion into these family matters, which are of vital interest to the family, but must be tedious to the outsider. As I am on the subject, I wish to say a word upon my mother's family, the more so as she was great on archaeology, and had, with the help of Sir Arthur Vickers, Ulster King of Arms, and himself a relative, worked out her descent for more than five hundred years, and so composed a family tree which lies before me as I write, and on which many of the great ones of the earth have roosted. Her father was a young doctor of Trinity College, William Foley, who died young and left his family in comparative poverty. He had married one Catherine Pack, whose deathbed, or rather the white waxen thing which lay upon that bed, is the very earliest recollection of my life. Her near relative, uncle, I think, was Sir Dennis Pack, who led the Scottish Brigade at Waterloo. The Packs were a fighting family, as was but right since they were descended in a straight line from a major in Cromwell's army, who settled in Ireland. One of them, Anthony Pack, had part of his head carried off at the same battle, so I fear it is part of our family tradition that we lose our heads in action. His brain was covered over by a silver plate, and he lived for many years, subject only to very bad fits of temper, which some of us have had with less excuse. But the real romance of the family lies in the fact that about the middle of the 17th century, the Reverend Richard Pack, who was head of Kilkenny College, married Mary Percy, who was heir to the Irish branch of the Percys of Northumberland. By this alliance we all connect up, and I have every generation by name, as marked out by my dear mother, with that illustrious line-up to three separate marriages with the Plantagenets. One has therefore some strange strains in one's blood, which are noble in origin, and one can but hope are noble in tendency. But all this romance of ancestry did not interfere with the fact that when Catherine Pack, the Irish gentlewoman, came in her widowhood to Edinburgh, she was very poor. I have never been clear why it was Edinburgh for which she made. Having taken a flat, she let it be known that a paying guest would be welcome. Just at this time, 1850 or thereabouts, Charles Doyle was sent from London with a recommendation to the priests that they should guard his young morals and budding faith. How could they do this better than by finding him quarters with a well-born and orthodox widow? 
Thus it came about that two separate lines of Irish wanderers came together under one roof. I have a little bundle of my father's letters written in those days, full of appreciation of the kindness which he met with, and full also of interesting observations on that Scottish society, rough, hard-drinking and kindly, into which he had been precipitated at a dangerously early age, especially for one with his artistic temperament. He had some fine religious instincts, but his environment was a difficult one. In the household was a bright-eyed, very intelligent young daughter, Mary, who presently went off to France and returned as a very cultivated young woman. The romance is easily understood, and so Charles Doyle in the year 1855 married Mary Foley, my mother, the young couple still residing with my grandmother. Their means were limited, for his salary as a civil servant was not more than about £240. This he supplemented by his drawings. Thus matters remained for practically all his life, for he was quite unambitious and no great promotion ever came his way. His painting was done spasmodically and the family did not always reap the benefit, for Edinburgh is full of watercolours which he had given away. It is one of my unfulfilled schemes to collect as many as possible and to have a Charles Doyle exhibition in London, for the critics would be surprised to find what a great and original artist he was, far the greatest, in my opinion, of the family. His brush was concerned not only with fairies and delicate themes of the kind, but with wild and fearsome subjects, so that his work had a very peculiar style of its own, mitigated by great natural humour. He was more terrible than Blake and less morbid than Vietz. His originality is best shown by the fact that one hardly knows with whom to compare him. In prosaic Scotland, however, he excited wonder rather than admiration, and he was only known in the larger world of London by pen and ink book illustrations, which were not his best mode of expression. The prosaic outcome was that, including all his earnings, my mother could never have averaged more than £300 a year on which to educate a large family. We lived in the hardy embracing atmosphere of poverty and we each in turn did our best to help those who were younger than ourselves. My noble sister Annette, who died just as the sunshine of better days came into our lives, went out at a very early age as a governess to Portugal and sent all her salary home. My younger sisters Lottie and Connie both did the same thing and I helped as I could, but it was still my dear mother who bore the long sordid strain. Often I said to her, When you are old, Mammy, you shall have a velvet dress and gold glasses and sit in comfort by the fire. Thank God it so came to pass. My father, I fear, was of little help to her, for his thoughts were always in the clouds, and he had no appreciation of the realities of life. The world, not the family, gets the fruits of genius. Of my boyhood I need say little, save that it was Spartan at home and more Spartan at the Edinburgh School, where a Tors brandishing schoolmaster of the old type made our young lives miserable. From the age of seven to nine I suffered under this pock-marked one-eyed rascal who might have stepped from the pages of Dickens. In the evenings home and books were my sole consolation save for weekend holidays. My comrades were rough boys and I became a rough boy too. If there is any truth in the idea of reincarnation, point on which my mind is still open, I think some earlier experience of mine must have been as a stark fighter 
for it came out strongly in youth when I rejoiced in battle. We lived for some time in a cul-de-sac street with a very vivid life of its own and a fierce feud between the small boys who dwelt on either side of it. Finally, it was fought out between two champions, I representing the poorer boys who lived in flats and my opponent the richer boys who lived in the opposite villas. We fought in the garden of one of the said villas and had an excellent contest of many rounds, not being strong enough to weaken each other. When I got home after the battle, my mother cried, Oh, Arthur, what a dreadful eye you have got! To which I replied, You just go across and look at Eddie Tullock's eye. I met a well-deserved setback on one occasion, when I stood forward to fight a bootmaker's boy who had come into our preserve upon an errand. He had a green baize bag in his hand which contained a heavy boot, and this he swung against my skull with a force which knocked me pretty well senseless. It was a useful lesson. I will say for myself, however, that though I was pugnacious, I was never so to those weaker than myself, and that some of my escapades were in the defence of such. As I will show in my chapter on sport, I carried on my tastes into a later period of my life. One or two little pictures stand out which may be worth recording. When my grandfather's grand London friends passed through Edinburgh, they used, to our occasional embarrassment, to call at the little flat to see how Charles is getting on. In my earliest childhood, such a one came, tall, white-haired and affable. I was so young that it seems like a faint dream, and yet it pleases me to think that I have sat on Thackeray's knee. He greatly admired my dear little mother with her grey Irish eyes and her vivacious Celtic ways. Indeed, no one met her without being captivated by her. Once, too, I got a glimpse of history. It was in 1866, if my dates are right, that some well-to-do Irish relatives asked us over for a few weeks, and we passed that time in a great house in Kings County. I spent much of it with the horses and dogs and became friendly with the young groom. The stables opened onto a country road by an arched gate with a loft over it. One morning, being in the yard, I saw the young groom rush into the yard with every sign of fear and hastily shut and bar the doors. He then climbed into the loft, beckoning for me to come with him. From the loft window we saw a gang of rough men, twenty or so, slouching along the road. When they came opposite to the gate, they stopped and, looking up, shook their fists and cursed at us. The groom answered back most volubly. Afterwards I understood that these men were a party of Fenians, and that I had had a glimpse of one of the periodical troubles which poor old Ireland has endured. Perhaps now, at last, they may be drawing to an end. During these first ten years I was a rapid reader, so rapid that some small library with which we dealt gave my mother notice that books would not be changed more than twice a day. My tastes were boy-like enough, for Maine Reed was my favourite author, and his Scalp Hunters my favourite book. I wrote a little book and illustrated it myself in early days. There was a man in it, and there was a tiger who amalgamated shortly after they met. I remarked to my mother with precocious wisdom that it was easy to get people into scrapes, but not so easy to get them out again, which is surely the experience of every writer of adventures. End of chapter 1